0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khan-Nam.
1: And I'm Jamal Dejani.
0: Jamal, we have an incredible show today. We're going to be talking about the final admission, not a complete admission, but the apartheid state seems to have um, come to the conclusion that they murdered American, Palestinian American uh, journalist uh, Shireen Abu Akla, we're going to talk a little bit about that. They couched it in kind of their typical Hasbara language, but uh, it seems like they're finally admitting that they, they've murdered this uh, Palestinian American journalist. We're also going to be talking about this crazy rule in the tradition of an apartheid regime. The Israeli apartheid state had passed a law saying that. Uh, Palestinians, including Americans, by the way, anybody visiting the West Bank would have to declare their love interests to the Can you believe this, Jess? Well, we'll get to it. There's a we're gonna talk about the law that's been put on hold temporarily. We'll see what's gonna happen. But the the idea that they would do this is rather remarkable. It's never been done before by an apartheid state or even a non-apartheid state this is truly remarkable we're going to talk about this but really the the big our our big story today is your interview with Karim uh, Dennis otherwise known as low key an internationally renowned rapper committed to rapping and singing and writing about justice one of the most extraordinary rappers around who's been, by the way, viciously attacked by pro-Israel forces and the apartheid state. And despite those attacks, has continued to make remarkable music, remarkable writing, and remarkable kind of a body of work uh, consistent with like a, a, a real genuine commitment to, to justice. And uh, your interview with them is really remarkable
1: loki is in the house uh, uh jess so let's let's listen to the interview with uh, loki a lot to learn much respect both for his music and his activism i mean this dude is on top of international affairs and and social justice
2: free, free, The of Uthorea could resist without a wheelchair. Ten year challenge, tell Reg if we are still here. And tell that killer Netanyahu he should feel fear. The old live through us and guarantee the children will care. Criminal, not invincible and you know it. Salmadun, doing still sitting in their stoic. May not feel us with you when you listen to our poems. You inspire humanity, your resistance is heroic. Regardless of talk, it is time we answer the call. Through your strength of spirit, you provide Israeli
1: apartheid, the refugee tragedy across Europe, racism, the Grenfell Tower inferno, in his chart topping raps, political activist, justice warrior, and of course rapper, Loki holds power accountable with compelling lyrics and heart-wrenching videos. Speaking truth to power is never without cost. One example is how Israel's lobbying network constantly works to censor Loki due to his criticism of Israeli apartheid and its oppression of Palestinian people. Using unfounded smears of anti-Semitism, they most recently tried to pressure Spotify to remove Loki's songs from its playlist. They've also pressured music venues and universities to cancel his appearances they had scheduled. But Loki will not be deterred. Loki is in the house today here on Arab Talk. First of all, I want to thank you for your unwavering dedication to continually call out justice wherever you see it using what has become your impressive music platform. I'd I'd like to start with uh, with you, Loki Karim Dennis, the man You embraced activism at a very young age. Would you say that rapping and activism were always parallel passions for you?
2: Well, to start with, thank you very much, Jamal, for the very kind introduction. This is uh, more than I deserve, um, I am sure. In terms of my own trajectory towards using music as a form of political mobilising. I would say that as a young person growing up in London and seeing the community which I am from have several different problems that were linked to global problems. So for example you have the way the war on terror manifested in my community. Certain legislation that was passed along with the war on terror had particular effect on peers of mine and people around me. Um, Also the direct familial connection to the war on terror insofar as one side of my family being from Iraq. um, That obviously then coming even further to the third example, which would be the Grenfell Tower fire, which happened um, next door to me and a friend of mine from the age of 14 uh, died in there with his entire family. For me, music was always going to be an extension of that intensely political experience. And I was always gonna try and achieve um, impossibilities through the music because we have quite a narrow parameter of political possibility in England, obviously being the state that occupied over 14 million square miles of the planet and dominated so many people's reality. Um, There's quite a gap between what England does in the world Even in Ireland, for example, which is the laboratory of uh, British imperialism and colonialism, a lot of what was done in uh, Palestine was exported from Ireland uh, first by the British during the mandate period. So for all of those reasons, music became a tool through which to bridge that gap and achieve the things which the political system did not allow, allow the space to achieve. Um, so in that way, it was kind of an antidote to that particular reality.
1: Well, that's what I was going to ask you next, because uh, your lyrics are well founded on deep knowledge of the causes of the world's malaise, neoliberalism, colonialism, uh, systemic racism. I mean, d- do you seek to liberate by educating and first educating yourself and then educating the others?
2: I would hope so, absolutely. Of course, you know, while the internet has kind of constructed for us a very sophisticated uh, goldfish bowl in which much of our activity is now freely available, you know, people can uh, purchase our personal details of our life from our electronic devices off the internet, they can gain access to almost any aspect of communication that happens through these devices. At the same time, we have an access to information which humanity has never really had before. And so I think specifically when dealing with the machinations of the Israel lobby in England, for example, there's a lot of information which one can access. But I think there's a way in which true investigative journalism is discouraged on quite a broad level in English society and in the United States also, you know, there's far more journalism, which is merely the repeating of press releases given by institutions of government. So, for instance, defence correspondents are regularly just reading out um, press releases given to them by either the DOD in the US or the Ministry of Defence in um, Britain. So while we have tools for investigative journalism, we don't have a lot of use um, of those tools. And so for me, a, a key sort of turning point has been being able to harness some of these tools that are there, especially the open source stuff, which is in the public domain, and investigating some of these organisations who have political objectives and are pursuing those political objectives in numerous ways within the society that I live in. Right. Your album soundtrack to The
1: Struggle, versions 1 and 2, include Long Live Palestine. How does the Palestinian struggle and resistance embody the greater fight against injustice in the world? And, and really, what, what prompted you to write this song?
2: Well, as Jamal, you will well know that uh, previous to the invention of the state of Israel, you had a train line built by the Ottomans which went from uh, Mosul to Haifa to Damascus to Baghdad to you know and my family were among the families that were able to go to Ramallah for example you know they were fortunate enough to be able to do that at one point um, Iraqis and Palestinians have a special connection which is also forged in um, you know the Iraqi army being the biggest uh, army in 1948. Again, there was the problem of misleadership. But today, if you talk to Palestinians, they will tell you about the graveyard in Jenin or in Askar, in uh, Nablus of uh, Iraqi soldiers. They'll tell you about the siege of Fallujah and uh, the Iraqi attempt to help the Egyptian forces there. Um, So Iraq always had a special kind of relationship with Palestine. There's uh, members of my family, my, my brother-in-law is a Palestinian um, from Lebanon. You know, this is fourth generation Palestinian refugee. We've had extended members of our family have always been Palestinians. So we've had this relationship. Um, and it's something that I was grew up with in the home of this injustice being something that also deeply affected and on some level traumatized us too. Um, So I would say that on a personal level kind of pushed me towards things. But then the context of the society I grew up in, you know, in 2008, 2009, with Operation Karzled, when Israel killed over 1,400 Palestinians in Gaza, you saw the area that I am from um, mobilise heavily in support of the Palestinians. Many of those young people were attacked by police and beaten up, and many of them were jailed for protesting outside the Israeli embassy, and in fact the head of the CPS at that time, the Crown Prosecution Service, is the current leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer. Mm -hmm. So he prosecuted um, a lot of people uh, from my community during that period. So these things more and more showed me that there was, on one hand, a great groundswell of support, of passion, of emotion linked to the Palestinian cause amongst all Arabs and all Muslims, actually. And as you rightly pointed out, all people that consider themselves to be post-colonial or emerging from colonial rule, which is actually a majority of humanity. When we think about the idea of decolonization being enshrined at the United Nations as a positive process, there are numerous political elites even in the world who have come out of the shadow of colonial domination who see within them uh, within palestinians uh, a brethren and sistren who have been trapped in the sands of time as it were who have been trapped in something of yesteryear which is foreign colonial domination so as you pointed out through the palestinian the specific you can see the general you can see the way in which infrastructures of domination around technology around mythologies around race around the uh the, the what would they say they could say jettisoning the idea of a religion into a race can then lead to this uh, exclusion of people upon these uh, this basis and has been practiced in different contexts and in different ways and in different places and we also have to remember that you know when uh the uh british intelligence services consult the Israeli intelligence services on numerous things. Israel went from inheriting a a new laboratory for Britain's colonial methods. So we look at the destruction of homes as a punitive measure. This was the British that did this first during the 36th uh, revolution, Palestinian revolution. um, And Israel adopted it, the use of human shields. It was the British that used Palestinians as minesweepers before the Israelis inherit all of these methods innovate upon these methods build and construct new methods with new technologies and then that is exported back into other sort of colonial metropoles like London and Washington so it's really through the particular that you can have an understanding of the general
1: what was your experience when you visited the, the Palestinian refugee camps in the West Bank and Gaza
2: Well, I mean, all of those experiences were different. Obviously, you know, it's normal that somebody of my background would be stopped and detained and interrogated. The the level of intelligence that they had was probably more than is usual. Um, It is my belief that certain measures were taken during my interrogation and detention by the Israelis that were then aimed to affect my ability to travel elsewhere. So following that experience, I was then unable to travel to the United States. As far as I understand, I still am unable to travel to the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, I then was detained several times traveling into Britain. I believe that certain updates were made to my file, which were probably untrue based on the indications I received from my interrogators um, within uh, 48 Palestine. So um, in terms of getting through, in terms of getting to Gaza, for example, getting through the sort of Egyptian, this was during the time of Husni Mubarak. I went on the Viva Palestina convoy. Um, You know, it's inspiring um, to see people holding strong to their idea of who they are, to their clarity about where they stand, to their love for one another to their ability to still be open, still be welcoming, despite the quite sophisticated conspiracy against Palestinian life, um, which seems senseless so much of the time. Um, So all of that was was inspiring and, and gave me elements that i thought would be good to apply in my own life in terms of ways to behave in terms of ways to treat people in terms of ways to um think of others um, so yeah it was definitely يعني, that, that's that's what that experience was like for sure You know, the height of bitterness and the height of uh, sweetness. Yes, yes, yes. Your
1: work addresses many forms of uh, inequity and suffering. The Britain-Israel Communications and Research Center would have us believe that your sole intent is to to sully Israel. Uh, Tell us about their recent attempt to scrub you from Spotify. I
2: mean, I'm happy to sully Israel. Israel sullies itself. What I would say about BICOM is this is the largest Israel lobby group in England. It mainly focuses on lobbying uh, news organisations like the BBC. This is an organisation that has had several key journalists uh, within it from the BBC. For instance, one of its first directors was a gentleman by the name of Mark Berg, who went from working for the BBC to working for BICOM, then back to working for the BBC. Um, it was founded by a gentleman by the name of Pojo Zabludovic, who his wealth came from his father's um, arms company, Soltam Systems, which was later subsumed into Elbit Systems, which is an arms uh, company which i have been part of the Palestine Action Campaign against Elbit Systems in this country. We've driven Elbit out of two of their bases in this country they shut down permanently their headquarters in london thanks to our campaign and they also sold a subsidiary at a loss in oldham thanks to our campaign but you know that's one aspect the Bicom uh push through its project we believe in israel which was founded by luke akers who's a political consultant to several arms companies um we believe in israel have aimed at with taking my music off of Spotify on the basis that it's tantamount to incitement. Now, this this issue of incitement is quite uh, important because in the Palestinian context, there are 15 journalists currently in Israeli dungeons now on the accusation of incitement. You've seen children arrested for things they've posted on social media on the accusation of incitement. You've seen a poet like Darin Tatur imprisoned for posting a poem onto Facebook that Israel decided was tantamount to incitement. So it's regularly used as an excuse to shut down speech, which uh, the Israeli government does not like. So it's interesting because this is the first application that I know of um, in England, but it probably wouldn't be the last Thus far, they've not been successful, though I'm sure they're still trying. The other elements of the Israel lobby here, like the campaign against anti-Semitism, which shares a director with the JNF, which is the largest um, land-owning body Within 48 Palestine, it builds settlements, it ethnically cleanses Palestinians from their land. So one of the directors of that organisation is the director of an organisation here called the Campaign Against Antisemitism. The JNF also funds the Campaign Against Antisemitism. They've been particularly animated in shutting me down in universities, in the trade unions, for example. They've been able to lobby some of the trade unions to no platform me. Um, you have other aspects of the Israel lobby, like the CST, which has a little bit more mainstream legitimacy. It gets £14 million pounds per year from the British government. Of course, Anthony Learman of the, Jewish, uh, the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, who formerly was a part of the CST, has asserted that the CST has employees uh, trained by Israeli intelligence services. The CST has regularly published things about me which are to my mind, defamatory. Um, And then you have other groups like the Conservative Friends of Israel. You have Labour Against Antisemitism. You know, there's a whole universe of Israel lobby groups here who are well-funded and who are uh, relentlessly militating against those who assert clearly the sanctity of Palestinian humanhood and the aversion to Israel's colonial domination of Palestinian land. As you named some some of
1: these groups, of course, uh, the pressured venues, uh, uh, universities in the UK to this invite you from speaking and performing. One example is the incident at the National Union of Students. You described this as the Israel lobby scoring their own goal. What did you mean by this?
2: Well, the 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 reference to the Israel lobby scoring their own goal was mainly towards the Spotify. Um, uh, campaign because the Spotify campaign was a lot harder. It was a terrain that was more difficult for them, because we believe in Israel, is which spearheaded the Spotify campaign is clearly an Israel lobby group. The university campaign, so National Union Students, was actually their most successful terrain in terms of where they've engaged me. And that's largely because a lot of what they did at that time was pushed through Parliament on one hand. So they mentioned my name several times in British Parliament in one week, but mm. also they had the Union of Jewish Students, which as an organization is led by someone called Aria Miller, who's a former employee of the Israeli embassy. The Union of Jewish Students also has uh, boasted of a productive working relationship with the Israeli embassy. It has several programs, unfortunately, which direct its members directly into the Israeli military of occupation. I'm happy to expand on that point, if required by anyone listening to this who would like to contest whether the Union of Jewish Students actually does have programs that do that. It does. Um, And also it's been claimed by former presidential candidates within the Union of Jewish Students. That's actually funded by the Israeli embassy. So the problem is, is that in wider society, the notion that a student group is being controlled by a particular foreign embassy is a little bit more difficult for a a very, frankly, well-trained English society to accept. So that's why the Union of Jewish Students is really the strongest line of attack, because Mm -hmm. it then becomes about you supposedly bullying uh, students of a particular religion, which is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a union linked to a state with particular political objectives, and of those political objectives are silencing people such as myself, and then through the silencing of me using that as an instrument to harm the National Union of Students, which now you've seen the elected president um, who had a pro-Palestinian position has now been suspended from the National Union of Students following a smear campaign, which then led to an, an investigation led by a particular QC, Rebecca Tuck, who has some quite interesting stated positions On the issue in which she is investigating, which I'm not a lawyer, but I understand could harm uh, the, the neutrality of her investigation. And that investigation has now led to Shema, the president of the NUS, the democratically elected president of the NUS, having stepped down. I, I don't know a lot oh, so about... She'd have to be suspended, sorry. She's yeah. Been
1: suspended. yeah, right. I, I don't know about the sentiments uh, in, in Britain, but I know right here in the United States, they have this, similar attempts to muzzle artists, uh, uh, academics, shut them down from speaking anything about Israel on campuses, but they have been losing. So my question to you, are the students... And for that matter, academics aware of these attempts uh, of the Israeli lobby and, and, and in that case, in your case, also the involvement of the Israeli embassy. They're, I think they're smarter than what they put
2: out there, as we call Israeli Hasbara. Well, I think that in the United States, it's interesting because the universities are less subject to, as far as my Shallow and superficial understanding of it is in the United States, the universities have a bit more power. They are less subject to rulings of government in the same way that universities in England still are. So, obviously, this is part of the whole neoliberal push, but it has a double edged sword in that what the double pronged attack in universities is, is you'll have the Union of Jewish Students say something about. A particular guest at a university but then that will then be mirrored in parliament Mm. by somebody like Robert Halfon formerly the political director of the conservative friends of Israel who regularly um, and you know things that they say in parliament are not legally actionable so he was essentially free to call me a racist in British parliament in a way that he couldn't have outside of British parliament but then here's the interesting thing the media will then report what he said so what you have is parliament basically being used as a subterfuge to create a narrative because parliament is not a place where I can sue someone. Right. So you have the UJS on one side, but then you have the parliament moving lock in step. And then uh, it sort of creating in tandem with the media in which you have several key figures. So for instance, the city editor at the daily mail newspaper, one of the most read newspapers in the country, millions of people read it every day is a gentleman by the name of Alex Brummer. Now, Alex Brummer is not only one of the board of deputies, which is a key Israel lobby group here, which has said in its own trustees report in 2020, that has a close working relationship with the Israeli embassy and strengthened links with the IDF and with the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. In addition to that, he heads an organization called Abraham Initiative, which is funded directly by the Israeli Ministry of Justice. Now. He's the city editor of the Daily Mail. This is clearly a conflict of interest. You have numerous other conflicts of interest throughout the British media um, or figures linked to Israel lobby groups. So what happens is you create this sort of nexus where truth is manufactured, which says very clearly that Jamal or Karim Loki is this. This de- definition then is then sent to institutions at universities and used as evidence to back up the assertion. And so then it makes it quite difficult for universities when being attacked from several directions, having the stuff in the media, the stuff in parliament, and student groups in their own university. This is, this is now the new idea of what actually is happening. This Therefore, you may not be an irrational person driven by a hatred of other people, but the story is plausible because it's being said by so many people at the same time.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and this conflict of interest, we've seen it here, with, uh, unfortunately, with uh, U.S. journalists. Uh, we've had uh, at least a couple of uh, bureau chiefs uh, in uh, Jerusalem for The New York Times who, whose either children or f- family members served in the Israeli occupation army. I'm moving moving on to your uh, career and your success your in- enormous success I would say topping the charts in 2012 uh, as uh, 14 on the UK's download uh, chart six in rhythm and blues y- you were peaking as an artist and
2: then then you took a hiatus why so at that time uh for me you know it's I was involved in the student movement in 2010. Um, Along that period of time, a a close friend of mine by the name of Jody McIntyre, who suffers from cerebral palsy, was assaulted by police on camera. Now, he actually won um, compensation for that. Following on from that, I got into an altercation with the police and was then arrested. And so throughout the largest level of success that I had as an artist, I was going in and out of court, actually, um, uh, for that case. Now, the case concluded um, before I stopped making music. But through going through that and going through the ups and downs of the music at the same time, I came to a conclusion that I needed to strengthen my knowledge, and I felt um, that, sometimes having this place to speak to in some cases even millions of people you do have a responsibility to make sure that what you're saying has some you know uh, basis in in reality in fact and in many ways it did but i think in some ways i was naive So at that point, I I went and got a master's, I qualified as a teacher of English, I qualified as a personal trainer, I also was part of an organisation called London to Calais, which we were at that time organising convoys and coordinating with law firms in bringing people from Calais who were, um, you know, this leads on to this issue of the refugee crisis. These were people who at that time, Britain was part of the European Union. So according to the Dubs Amendment in EU law, those were people that, could be brought to Britain and claim for asylum in Britain because they had first degree relatives in Britain, even though they were in another EU country. So, working on that, politically organizing in a different way. And then you see the emergence of Jeremy Corbyn. Now, the combination of things where I was looking at the work I was doing on uh, London to Calais stuff, and I thought, you know, this is crazy. You have thousands of people that want to hear what you have to say about something you're working in this very micro way but you actually have the ability to assert some type of agency on a macro level start making music again so i started making music again um and and you know we then went on tour and stuff like that and the politics was still present but not present in the way it was when i wasn't making music then you returned in in in
1: 2016 with ahmed a very, a very moving and painful video about the burgeoning refugee crisis and Europe's near apathy to the victims. Was this something you need to return to speak out about?
2: Absolutely, because at that time I had seen the way in which the the, the vertical solidarity and horizontal hate within English society had become so prevalent you know refugees in england are only 0.18 percent of the the population um if they do have access to public funds it's something like 37 pounds 50 a week um, there's over a million people that have no recourse to public funds you compare that in terms of a, a quote-unquote a burden on the public to somebody like rupert murdoch who owns News Corps and who is responsible for the Sun newspaper, Sky News Channel, literally owns the sun and the sky in, in the way that he imagines it to be. And the type of vitriol and, uh, and horrific stereotypes that are produced about refugees in his newspapers, the idea of scarcity, the idea that these people are taking something from you, um, he's very successfully peddled that. But according to the Washington Post, this is somebody who, through News Corp, they hide their profits through a complex web of tax havens. According to the Guardian newspaper, he did not pay any corporate tax in this country for 11 years. Now, this is somebody who has huge power within English society to dominate the way that people think, particularly the way that people think about refugees. So in the face of that, I saw it as... uh, it would be a rather silly move to stay working in this very micro way rather than actually use the voice that I'd built and come out and speak in that way. And so I did. And then that coincided, as I say, with the emergence of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. Um, obviously, Corbyn had been a backbencher for many years. The Labour Party is a deeply violent, imperialist, pro-Israel um, party, uh, key uh, Key um, player in the neoliberalization of the British economy, in the privatisation of key sectors within uh, English life, but Jeremy Corbyn provided a different, a different possibility. And right. many of us—I never joined the party, I never will—but um, I supported him, and I supported the party at that time. I was able to mobilise people locally in my community to support him and the party. I was able to try and push um, for him to, to win, you know. And we, in 2017, were 2,000 votes off of winning. But communi- the community that I'm from is um, uh, Latimer or Labrick Grove in North Kensington. Kensington itself is one of the richest boroughs in the world, but the part of Kensington that I live in has a 25-year difference in life expectancy from the south part of the borough. So it's one of the poorest parts of the country. Now, we were able to win for the Labour Party in our borough, which had never happened before. Wow. um, Just by the strength of our part of the borough uh, mobilising in line with the Corbyn project. And, of course, we saw a multitude of intelligence agencies work to stop what Corbyn was doing, including the British one. And so, this is something that we have been witness to. We've been witness to another subversion of a better future by uh, powerful forces who do a lot to obscure their own uh, influence in society. You've expanded your reach uh, with the
1: podcast, The Watchdog, which you started in the summer of 2021. Uh, this platform is, allows you to dig deeper
2: uh, into one issue. Tell me about it. Well, the Watchdog is a a podcast that I've been very fortunate to carry out uh, with Mint Press. I've been able to interview people from Noam Chomsky to um, you know recently Ariel Corin, who just resigned from Google. For because of uh, the punishment of pro-Palestinian workers within Google. I was able to interview her, been able to interview some really interesting um, people from all different uh, walks of life in different places. And yeah, as you say, it gives me a good opportunity to expand some of these ideas, to dig deeper, and also to have a, a sort of platform to show some of the investigative work that I also do.
1: Can we look forward to some new amazing low-key
2: rap releases? Um, Yes, hopefully there is some stuff in the works. You know, I can't pretend that this campaign hasn't um, slowed down the music side of what I do. It has. um, It does make it harder to make music in a self-sufficient way. Media seems to be a slightly safer place in some ways, um, in terms of, I'm an independent artist, I've always been an independent artist, so what that means is that I invest money in music and there kind of has to be a return, whereas with media the return is in people's ideas, the return is not necessarily a direct um, transaction. So their limiting of my ability to reach people as a musician um, has made it less likely that the investment will take place to make another, you know, big album. But we'll try. Well, it's a pleasure talking to
1: you, uh, Karim Dennis. Low key. Uh, you can find his music all over Spotify, iTunes, go to uh, I, uh, YouTube, uh, go to you have a website? I do not know. I do oh, well, not Well anyway, it's 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 out there, it's powerful, it's inspirational. Make sure you know you listen to his music and, and hopefully we'll have you soon on Arab Talk.
2: I would love that. I would love that. Thank you very much.
0: Wow. That that's the voice and the face of low-key, Karim Dennis, uh international uh, basically, music superstar Jamal. There's no other way to look at it. Um, the interview was really fascinating, and and I think, as you said at the beginning, you know, his command of international social justice issues is is really impressive. I mean, this individual has a command of uh, international political uh, events unlike many people that uh, we've interviewed in the in in the spectrum of music and cultural affairs. He's a sophisticated individual, has a deep command of political and social justice issues all over the world, and has committed himself to integrating that with his art, his music, and his rapping. He's a remarkable in- individual, Jamal.
1: You're absolutely right, Jess.
0: Moving on...
1: To the news of the day, news that we've actually said it from day one. Israel murdered Shirina Baatli.
0: Absolutely they and, did. And, and we what said took them so
1: long. And yeah. we said they were going to deny it, which, they, which did. they did. Deny, deny, deny. We said that they, along with their uh, surrogates right here in the United States, are going to deflect, make excuses try to tarnish her reputation, try to say she's in the wrong place, try to say to blame it on Palestinians killing her, all kinds of things. But thankfully, and I say thankfully kind of lightly to tell you the truth, and that's because of the pressure of of, uh, worldwide pressure and Palestinian-American pressure and her family's pressure uh, on the State Department to keep pushing the Israelis to investigate now finally the news we're getting it from the Israeli occupation forces they have admitted for the first time and this is their language that there is look look they can't even they don't have the decency to, to apologize come, and say or to
0: come clean they won't come, come clean. clean
1: they say they say that there is a high possibility Palestinian American Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh was shot and killed by Israeli fire while covering an Israeli military operation in Jenin in May. That's their announcement. I mean, when you, they say, they, they don't say this, by the way, they don't say this at all, uh, high possibility. High possibility. I tell you one thing, Jess. They knew from day one, not only that they killed her, who shot her, the name of the soldier, his rank, what type of rifle he used, all, what type of bullet killed her. They knew that from day one, and they, and they kept denying it, and and had it not for the international pressure, they would not have come to this well, admission.
0: Well, I would say if not for the courage of her family, you know, Jamal, that Shereen's family has been uh, dogged in their pressuring uh, Anthony Blinken. They came to the United States, although they didn't meet with President Biden, and they should have. By the way, they 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 marshaled an international campaign to to bring attention to her murder by the apartheid state by by the israeli military and you're absolutely right they knew about it they knew about it from the moment it happened it's a very weak statement uh but you know i guess for a for an apartheid murderous military regime it's a it's a step my question for you and we'll continue to follow this story what will be the repercussions of them admitting that that they murdered the journalist what, what will happen? Will the United States take any action You know, because they did, in fact, murder an American citizen? Uh, will there be any accountability above uh, just admitting that they did this? What will the next step look like, Jamal? My prediction, nothing will happen
1: from the United States end because if the U.S. was so concerned outside that pressure, the first thing they should have done our politicians should have done is, is froze uh, military aid right. to Israel. That's that's kind of the minimum step that you will take when your military uh, funding and, and weapons were used to kill innocent people like children, like civilians, like journalists, like medics, which Israel has the habit to do. And they haven't done that. They haven't done it with the elderly Palestinian American who was also killed by the Israel. They let, they bound him and tied him to the ground, let him basically freeze to death and die. And, right. and, and they just got a minor slap on the list. So I don't expect them to do anything beyond this. And it's, it's really criminal. It's criminal, of course. If we know the Israeli criminal on their side, a criminal on, on the politicians who keep signing that blank check to Israel every year, knowingly that Israel has been certified as an apartheid state, knowingly that Israel has killed uh, children, has killed journalists, has killed uh, uh, medics. And it just, it's just going to go on. It's, it, it's really now. I tell you one thing. It's now they are in the Hasbara. Scenario: How right. how can they spin this to minimize it? Because, like as I said earlier, deny, 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 deflect, 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 and now basically get, go into the Hasbara or Israeli propaganda mode, mode with with their surrogates right here in the U.S. to say, "Oh, uh, this was accidental. She was at the wrong place in the wrong time. All these all these crazy scenarios they'll try to cook for you." But my question, actually, my question to all these uh, Hasbara trolls that they ha- who have been lying since her death, what are they going to do now since Israel has admitted that they killed? Because before they were saying, no, Palestinians killed Well, them. Are they well, going to bury their heads in the sand?
0: Yeah, and this is my theory. I mean, you know, of course, I'm always interested in the timing of these announcements, Jamal. This announcement came out. On a very, you know, from a news standpoint, a very interesting point. You know, it's it's uh, it's in the middle of a holiday weekend that they they made this announcement. The there's a lot of other news going on in the United States and globally right now. I mean, we we don't have time to go into it. You know, whether it's the war in Ukraine or a new prime minister in the UK or flooding. And global warming i mean the timing of them announcing this statement is going to get buried so my prediction is that they announce it and they're not going to say anything they're going to hope that people's memories for this will be very short we will not forget this we are going to continue well, look to how
1: disgusting their statement is and i want to quote from the statement and, and this is from the israeli military it appears that it's not possible to unequivocally determine the source of the gunfire which hit and killed Miss Abu Akleh however there is a high possibility that Miss Abu Akleh was accidentally hit by IDF gunfire fired towards suspects identified as armed Palestinian gunmen during an exchange of fire
0: See there's all lies it's all lies there were there was no gunfire going on there was no there were no palestinians in the in the vicinity that's complete unequivocal bs as we know so yeah i i predict that they will just uh bury their head in the sand so i have one one quick question for you jamal next time you and i go to visit palestine are you ready to declare your love interests i guess i have to i have to Uh, Declare who I'm having any kind of romantic relationship with next time I go to Palestine Uh, Who does this Jamal? Let me ask you who does this not even the most rogue states? the most Rogue states in this in this world ask you to declare your love interest. Nobody.
1: I, I, I have to admit they're getting creative in exposing Themselves, themselves yes as as an apartheid regime as a ridiculous regime you know we just we didn't we haven't finished talking about them raiding uh, palestinian uh, civil society organizations and shutting them down
0: exactly and we
1: haven't finished talking about them how they try to blame the civil society organizations as terror group in other words basically they're saying all palestinians are terrorists so they try to be creative you know, first, the harassment at the airport when uh, foreigners or, of Palestinian descent or even who sympathize with Palestinians get harassed all the time at the airport and at the crossings uh, from Jordan at the bridges. And, uh, and all the tactics that they use to ethnically cleanse Palestinians, if a Palestinian from Jerusalem marries someone, let's say, from Nablus, she or he cannot live uh, with his or her spouse uh, in Jerusalem— and now uh, foreigners must tell the Israeli defense ministry if they fall in love with a Palestinian in the occupied uh, West Bank, uh, according to the new rules. And, and, uh, you can't make this, put the expletive here, you can't make it up, Jess.
0: I mean... Well, it's, it's bizarre. It's, again, another example of the apartheid state, of the Israelis overplaying their oppressive hand I did read that there's a temporary stay on this order, but uh, I think if we look at it from the larger perspective, Jamal, they, as you said, not only are they getting creative, they they leave themselves open to international condoms, condemnation yet again. So my I wonder just, if
1: just want to clarify this order just is part of a whole big thing, right? right and this is this is the newest of the of this just to give an example the new restrictions that they came up with on for example Palestinian universities include a quota of one hundred and fifty student visas and one hundred uh, foreign lecturers that's a total well there is no such limits uh, on on Israeli universities so you're limited you cannot have basically foreign students coming uh, into the country or or foreign lecturers coming into the country then business people uh, and and aid organizations uh, also have limited uh, visas on people coming to work for them
0: well here's the question i have jamal i love everybody when when i go to palestine my list of of when i'm going to disclose my love interests when i go there my romantic interests it's going to be a very long list
1: it is uh, crazy uh, again Wake up and 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 smell, and the, smell the. No, wake smell up and smell
0: the. Well, wake up and smell the apartheid, Jamal. That's I mean, what I. I mean, what we the have the State here. Department. Is the State Department going to say anything
1: about this? I don't think so. I mean, this is a ridiculous thing about it. This is the one we have a one state between. Let's let's think about the facts on the ground between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and you have two systems. That's it. That's That's what apartheid is. That's the that's the that's the simple definition. By the way, this is um, this whole thing. Like I said, it's a ninety-seven-page gogat. That gogat is 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 the unit that organization uh, basically administers everything in the West Bank Israeli unit. This is basically it's called uh, the the title procedure for entry and residence of foreigners in Judea and and Samaria. That the uh, the name Israel uses uh, for for the best bank. So it's not one item. This is the latest uh, item that they have to come and be basically be uh, creative. They they just have to be creative, basically to, to well. The
0: EU has make already- life
1: hell for Palestinians,
0: right? The e- I know that the EU has condemned this already, but I'm just waiting to see what the United States what what a State Department will say about this blatantly racist uh oppressive strategy and what will academics do Jamal this is an attack on academic freedom yet again
1: well you, know, well, you know there is an academic boycott of israeli universities and they wonder and
0: but, uh, but they wonder why there's an academic boycott of israeli institutions uh, uh, exactly. they wonder why
1: and going to your first question nothing will happen nothing will happen including the eu's condemnation if the EU and EU separate countries like Germany and others keep funding Israeli apartheid and giving them money, when we talk about American taxpayers are forced to dole out $3.8 billion every year to Israel in military aid to replenish their supplies of the, of, of the rockets and weapons that they drop on Palestinians, if you don't take this action, the few Congress congressmen and congresswomen who, who, who call for such an action, the minimum the minimum the united states has to do is to freeze
0: absolutely to freeze funding absolutely. this this absolutely. apartheid regime to freeze absolutely shipping
1: we- uh, weapons to this apartheid regime and ask them what are you going to do to improve the, really now what are you going to do to end your apartheid practices not just by condemning it or, or making some silly statement uh, you know that we are uh, accustomed unfortunately to hear
0: yeah, it's, uh, it's a remarkable extension of their oppressive practices. We're going to continue to follow this and look at the consequences. But we won't stop from holding uh, this oppressive uh, apartheid regime accountable. We're going to continue to talk about it. You've been listening
1: to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, ArabTalkRadio.com to download the latest shows. And we'll talk to you next week.